0: Welcome to The God Solution, a place where we discuss solid evidence for the Christian faith and interviews with leading Christian apologists. Each week, you'll be encouraged in your faith and equipped to defend it and share it in your daily life. You can find out more about The God Solution at Godsolutionshow.com.
1: Now, here's your host, Nate Herbst. Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm so excited that you're tuned back in. Well, today we're going to be having the second part of our interview with Dr. Fazel Rana of Reasons to Believe. You can find out more about him at reasons.org. Anyway, he's the Vice President of Research and Apologetics at Reasons to Believe, and he's authored numerous groundbreaking books including who was Adam, creating life in the lab, and the cell's design. I am also particularly interested in his work because he has a Ph.D. in biochemistry. My undergraduate degree was in chemistry, so he's a fellow chemist. Anyway, without any further ado, let's get to the second part of our interview with Dr. Rana. So last week we were talking a little bit about mitochondrial DNA. You brought up an example of how uh, different people are trying to explain the existence of the mitochondria, and that actually triggered something different in my mind. I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, mitochondrial Eve and Y-chromosomal Adam. I know some of our listeners are familiar with these terms. What's going on with those terms, and how do they relate to the biblical concept of Adam and Eve?
0: Yeah, well, this this to me, uh, the discovery of mitochondrial Eve and Y-chromosomal Adam ranks among what I think to be one of the more more significant discoveries in support of, uh, of the, the the Christian faith, uh, because what these discoveries indicate is that, with regard to mitochondrial DNA as a genetic marker, that if you take essentially the the genetic variability of people that live around the world, and you look for uh, how you explain the origin of that variability with regard to their mitochondrial DNA, it turns out that ultimately you can trace the origin of every person on the planet back to an ancestral sequence of mitochondrial DNA that have been dubbed a mitochondrial Eve uh, in, it, by scientists. And some people actually believe that Eve corresponds, mitochondrial Eve, to a single female individual. And likewise, with Y-chromosomal DNA, you can show... That every person on the planet, or sorry, check that every man on the planet can trace an origin back to a single ancestral sequence uh, that has been dubbed Y-chromosome atom uh, that, again, many people think corresponds to a single male individual. And it's really provocative to think that the, that mitochondrial Eve and Y-chromosome Adam looks as if they uh, uh, appeared uh, roughly at the same time in roughly the same location, close to where we think the Garden of Eden would have been, and that they were part of uh, what appears to be a relatively small uh, population of individuals. And so it looks to me as if, with this discovery, that we have pointers uh, to perhaps the biblical Adam and the biblical Eve. It's really provocative. Again, that even biblical imagery naturally follows uh, from from you know, the discovery of you know, these ancestral sequences and the interpretation of these ancestral sequences. And to me, I see these as pointers uh, to the, the reality or the credibility of the, of the biblical account of human origins.
1: It's amazing. Yeah, I've, I've actually heard even some Christians recently that doubt this. Could that be true? It sounds too good to be true. Is this too good to be true? Or, I mean, should we embrace this? Are there, are there reasons that we should be skeptical? Well, you know... Um,
0: it, the, the, the genetics involved in the origin of humanity, the population genetics, is very complex stuff, and um, uh, it, and I've been I'm in continual conversation with people who hold differing perspectives than what we hold at Reasons to Believe about uh, how we understand uh, the genetic origin of humanity and mitochondrial even Y chromosomal atoms. Uh, and, and in spite of those conversations, where again, these people that I'm engaging, who I respect tremendously, but who hold a differing perspective, uh, in spite of th- that, I'm still convinced that there's validity to these concepts uh, of mitochondrial and Y chromosomal atom and And part of the issue or, or the point of contention is what was the original population size like? Uh, and And some people argue that when you look at the genetic variability of humanity, that genetic variability is too great to be encompassed by uh, two individuals, that you'd have to have many, many more individuals than two individuals to be able to accommodate, essentially, the genetic diversity that we see in humanity today. And so they argue that there are minimally 10,000 or or several thousand individuals, not two individuals, and that mitochondrial and Y chromosomal ADAM therefore don't correspond to a single male and single female individual. And one of the things that we've been doing, we've done this in the updated version of was ADAM, but also I've written a number of blog articles that are available on our website at reasons.org about how studies in conservation biology that are looking to connect population sizes with genetic diversity time and time again show that those models that are used to estimate uh, genetic diversity from population size and population size from genetic diversity actually don't work well. They actually break down. And if that's the case, then I I think that it's premature to draw conclusions about what the population size actually was uh, for for humanity. Uh, And and in light of that, I don't think there's anything that, that necessarily means we have to abandon the idea that mitochondrial Eve and the chromosomal atom may indeed be pointers to the biblical atom and the biblical Eve.
1: Shifting gears here a little bit, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the concept of natural selection and its connection to positive mutations. Now, correct me if I'm wrong here, we do see... Negative mutations, of course, everybody's familiar with this. We also see positive mutations, but they are very rare. And those positive mutations, if I'm not mistaken, are always ones that work with genetic information that already exists. They might be, uh, as Dr. Behe would say, bridge-burning kind of mutations, where maybe the cell sacrifices something for some kind of benefit maybe malarial resistance in sickle cell anemia patients or something like that. So we have mutations that are negative. We have positive mutations that work with genes that are already there. Do we ever see positive mutations that actually create new and novel information that can then be passed on to offspring? Yeah,
0: you know, to me, I, I, uh, I probably differ a little bit with uh, uh, some of my, you know, friends and colleagues who are are Christian apologists working uh, in this area, because I actually do think that there are mechanisms that at least in principle that could create information, Uh, you know, and and you you made allusion to, uh, you know, essentially genetic mutations altering ultimately amino acid sequences and proteins that could create proteins with new functions. But there are also other mechanisms like gene duplication that then would create excess genetic material that that then could be uh, manipulated uh, by evolutionary, you know, processes, by mutations and stuff, or you might even have uh, genes, gene fusion that could take place as genes are moving around uh, within the genome through recombination or other mechanisms like that. So I actually do think there are mechanisms that can produce uh, information, and when when you you when you start talking about what constitutes novel information, that becomes a little bit of a complex discussion mm-hmm. as to exactly what do you mean by information and what do you mean by novel information. But to me, I think the question on the table is, not so much can, can evolutionary mechanisms generate information, but are evolutionary mechanisms capable of actually driving large-scale biological innovation? And, you know, one of the areas that you see now emerging as people are trying to understand how uh, evolution could proceed in principle is the idea that maybe what is happening isn't so much uh, simply substitution mutations or the generation of new particular new genes, but it may very well be alteration in gene regulation or gene expression. So, for example, the gene set that human beings have and chimpanzees have is virtually identical, but the gene expression patterns are very different. So, for example, the gene expression patterns in the human brain are very different than the gene expression patterns in the chimpanzee brain. And it could very well be that these differences account for uh, the cognitive differences that we see between humans and chimps. Uh, but the, the problem is is that when you begin to, to tinker around with gene expression, you can create uh, quite a bit of, of chaos or, or, or problems in the organism, particularly during the course of development. Because many of the genes that people envision that are involved in change gene expressions are these uh, developmental regulatory genes that are turning on and turning off genetic programs that are specifying the development of different biological structures and when you start messing with those genes the consequences are absolutely catastrophic and so to me i think that you can very well explain novel information through you know through mutation and other kinds of changes in the genome like gene duplication and and f- gene fusions and things like that but i don't think that those mechanisms can get you very far in terms of creating novel structures, and when you start thinking about, you know, changing gene regulation and gene expression patterns, uh, those kind of changes are going to have such large-scale ramifications that it's very hard to imagine how those changes could happen in a coordinated manner to create uh, anything other than a hope a hopeless monster, if you will, and so. Uh, we know from uh, laboratory studies we know from uh, medical conditions that people suffer when those kind of mutations take place they're absolutely devastating uh, for the organism so uh, to me I, I don't think the question is, can evolutionary mechanisms generate information, but can they can these mechanisms generate novel uh, Innovative structures, if you will, mm-hmm. can they drive biological innovation? and I think the answer is uh, i no i don 't see any evidence for that whatsoever.
1: I loved how Dr. Behe demonstrated in his book, The Edge of Evolution," kind of exactly what you 're saying that looking at fifty years of the AIDS virus, we haven 't seen any substantive change, and of course that mutates far faster than any eukaryotic organism. And it's had many more generations, of course, over the last 50 years than our species or most other biological species. So yeah, looking at the laboratory evidence, it looks like you won't get those big changes that evolution would need.
0: This is really bringing up a very important point that I think we we don't want to gloss over too quickly. Mm -hmm. And that is, many times what you see happening is what I'll call the shell game of evolution. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, And if that term isn't original to me, uh, somebody else coined the term and I have just borrowed it because I like it so much. But it's the idea that many times people will point to evidence for evolution at one level or one regime and then argue that this is evidence for evolution at an entirely Mm -hmm. different level or for entirely different category transformations. So, for example... Uh even if let's say hypothetically you could generate new proteins uh through you know, through mutational events. I believe you can. I know other people think that you can't. Uh but that that discussion aside, we'll just say hypothetically, even if you could generate novel proteins uh through evolutionary mechanisms, that's not the same thing as generating uh brand new biological systems. That are integrated with the entire organism that are providing some kind of benefit, and so. But what we'll see many times is people will say, "Well, look, we've got evidence uh, at for evolution at this level. Uh, we have evidence that even evolution can generate novel proteins at this level, but it doesn't mean that that evidence actually can explain, you know, where, uh, again, novel biological structures or systems." actually come from, uh, that's a completely different set of mechanisms that, that are required to explain that. There's a, there, the, the, the level of informational complexity is, is orders and orders of magnitude greater than what you're looking at when you're dealing with the emergence of a protein. And so we want to be careful not to get sucked into the shell game of evolution.
1: You mentioned expression patterns of different genes. And you kind of hinted at the the difference between coding sections of DNA and regulatory. Now, I know that a lot of what has been called junk DNA in the past has been determined to be regulatory. Maybe it's not coding, but it's regulatory. And uh, I've heard a little bit about the ENCODE project and how that's kind of doing away with the junk DNA concept. Uh, How does all that play into the genetic argument for common descent?
0: Well, I mean, that's... You know, the idea that, uh, that what appeared, what we thought was junk within the genomes of organisms and that now turns out to be functional has a profound implication for the argument for common descent. Because when it comes to the case for common descent made from a genetic standpoint, one of the, for many people, one of the more compelling arguments is that there appears to be not only Vast amounts of genomes that are made up of junk, which people view as the vestiges of an evolutionary history. But they even go one step further and argue that there that that junk DNA is in different, you know, has different classes or different categories of junk DNA sequences, and that you see the sh- the same uh, types of junk DNA uh, in in humans and and let's say the great apes. That is, uh, they're shared junk DNA sequences where even the, the sequence of nucleotides within those regions of DNA seem to be identical or nearly identical. And so they argue that there's no way those the shared non-functional features could appear in the genomes of humans and apes in corresponding locations unless you have an evolutionary history. But as we're beginning to discover that, again, there's function for what we thought to be junk DNA, uh, that argument for evolution or common descent begins to evaporate. Uh, And the reason why is because you can now view those shared shared features that are functional as reflecting common design, not common descent. Mm
1: -hmm. We've talked a little bit about some of the reasons that the other evidence for evolution is lacking. What about chemical evolution? Why can't life come from non-life?
0: the origin of life problem or, or the problem of chemical evolution in terms of how do we generate the very first cell from you know a complex uh, chemical stew that would have existed on the early earth uh it you know it is one of the the most challenging problems that the evolutionary paradigm faces how do we explain uh, the origin of life and and this problem has been studied for close to 70 years now with really very little visible progress. Most people that work in this area will readily admit we have no uh, idea how life could have originated. Uh, and now, it is true, though, you can go into a laboratory and under quote-unquote simulated conditions generate virtually all the building blocks of life, or many of the most significant ones. And you can even do things like assemble, you know, RNA molecules on clay surfaces and in, in, in misty things like that. but what you end up seeing with all of these experiments, and in, in my mind, this is this is the fatal flaw to the whole uh, chemical evolution concept is that while you can in a laboratory generate, let's say, different building block materials for life, these experiments that are done in the laboratory are done under chemically controlled, chemically pristine conditions where typically, you know, you have researchers that are setting up these, these you know, reaction you know, vessels and they are uh, adding the right type of solvent. They're getting the right temperature, the right pH. They're adding the, the compounds in the right, or, with the right order of addition. They're controlling the concentrations uh, and they're careful to exclude contaminating materials from the system. If they're if they're introducing an energy source, it's it, it's introduced at the just right time in the reaction sequence, uh, and, and 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 they're able to produce again the building block materials of life. But what you see happening is that the organic chemists themselves have actually played a, a central role in the experimental design by controlling and manipulating the conditions of the reaction. Now we now try to translate that chemistry to the conditions of the early earth, you now have a very different scenario where the concentrations of materials may be way too low for any kind of reactions to, to reasonably take place. You're going to have a chemically complex environment where there's going to be a lot of materials present that are going to either represent side reactions or simply inhibitory reactions. Once those materials form, there's going to be other processes that are going to react with the end product or cause the end product to break down. And you also are in an environment on the early Earth where the energy conditions are such that they too could contribute to the breakdown of the materials, particularly UV radiation from the sun. And so the likelihood of those reactions in the laboratory happening on the early Earth or at least happening in a way that would be productive for the origin of life is virtually existent, and so what these laboratory experiments show is really number one how fastidious these chemical reactions actually are uh... and how difficult they would be to take place on the early earth but also what they show is how important it is to have intelligent agency uh... involved in the transformation of chemical materials into more complex chemical entities that would contribute to the origin of life process. In other words, work in in prebiotic chemistry, work in chemical evolution, work in the origin of life, are showing unequivocally that intelligent agency is indispensable uh, to to bringing about the the origin of life itself. And, And these workers have provided what I would call empirical evidence for the critical role of intelligent agency in the origin of life. So it's not just simply that chemical evolution doesn't work. But what the work that has has been done in chemical evolution is actually representing, to me, one of the more compelling reasons to think that a creator must have played a role in the origin of life.
1: Could you just kind of summarize what we've been talking about?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, to me, I think that the, the bottom line is this, that, number one, what many people will point to as The best evidence for evolution can be easily understood, uh, and accommodated within a creation model or an intelligent design framework. And that the the case for evolution is ultimately bolstered by a strong philosophical commitment to, uh, to mechanistic explanations for the origin of life, the design of life, and the history of life. And those mechanistic Explanations and that commitment to those mechanistic explanations mean that that you have to rely on some form of evolution, and so it's not so much that the scientific evidence supports evolution, but rather it's that there's a the, the philosophical commitment is such that people then interpret the evidence that they have within an evolutionary framework, and that when we begin to press on the question of how did life originate, how did um, did, did the major groups of organisms emerge? Uh, you know, how does uh, do, do features like human exceptionalism emerge, which we didn't talk about? Mm. When we begin to press on those explanations, what we oftentimes see is that, that, that there are failed predictions, uh, many failed predictions connected with the evolutionary paradigm, or that the mechanisms that we know of just simply don't seem to be adequate. And as a result of that, Anybody who is skeptical of evolution is justified in that skepticism, and that skepticism isn't driven by some kind of theological commitment to a creator's existence. This skepticism is, is driven by some very real scientific problems. Uh, when I was in grad, started graduate school, I was an agnostic. I didn't know if God existed or not, and I didn't care. I thoroughly embraced the evolutionary paradigm, But it was, number one, uh, recognizing the scientific problems with chemical evolution as a way to explain the origin of biochemical systems that, that was critical in convincing me that there had to ultimately be a creator or a mind behind life itself. And so it was science that led me to a theological conclusion. It wasn't a theological conviction that then caused me to question established scientific theories uh, and and so I do question established scientific theories but I question them because I think they're scientifically deficient and it mm-hmm. just so happens that that that, 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 that deficiency uh, is what I would expect if indeed a creator was ultimately responsible for life itself And so those scientific deficiencies are are, are, are lead one to the, at least the possibility that a creator, creator must indeed exist. And, and the fact of the matter is, when we look at biological systems, the, the remarkable design that we see that's characteristic of biology in and of itself points to a creator. And in fact, prior to Darwin, people readily interpreted that design as actual bona fide design reflecting the creator's handiwork.
1: It is kind of naturally assumed in our society that evolution is a fact, and a lot of people even say that, and if you're skeptical of evolution, that's the greatest heresy in today's society. I also know that I would never have gotten away with the kind of just-so explanations that we find prevalent in evolution today in an organic chemistry class. I mean, I would have failed the class if I tried to pull this stuff. Darwin said, ignorance more frequently begets confidence than does knowledge. That seems to be what's going on with evolution today. Am I right?
0: That is exactly right. It's that <laughs> uh, you know. So often do do I hear you know, that we don't know how something evolved, but we know that it evolved, mm-hmm. and and that to me is <laughs> confidence in in the face of of ignorance. Uh, whereas, if maybe if we don't know how something evolved, maybe that's an indication that it maybe didn't evolve, and maybe there's a a counter-explanation when involving the handiwork of a creator.
1: I agree. Well, hey, tell us where we can find out more about you, maybe suggest a few books that our listeners could pick up.
0: Yeah, well, uh, if people want to know more about me, the best place to go would be to our website, reasons.org, www.reasons.org. And um, I've got a blog called The Cells Design that people uh, can read. I usually post a a new article every week. Uh, We also have an ensemble of podcasts and and videos that are available through our website that people can access. And if people really want to dig deeper into the question of human origins, the book that I co-authored with Hugh Ross, Who Was Adam?, is a great place to, to start. If people are interested in the origin of life question, a couple of books I've written they might may want to take a look at. One is called Origins of Life, the other is called Creating Life in the Lab. If people are interested in the case for design, uh, I would suggest a book called The Cells Design that I wrote uh, that talks about how the latest discoveries in, in um, biochemistry uh, allow us to revitalize the, the classic watchmaker argument for God's existence.
1: And you can pick those up at reasons.org. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Dr. Rana.
0: Well, thank you for having me. It's been a, a pleasure, and it's great to catch up with you again.
1: Dr. Anna. it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. All right. God bless you. You too. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Dr. Rana about evolution and why evolution is not true. You can go to com and get all of our past shows, including these interviews, with Dr. Fuzrana. You know, the Bible is clear that you were created by God and that you were created by God for a purpose. And that purpose was to know him personally and to walk closely with him here on this planet and to spend all of eternity with him in heaven. The Bible also says that each one of us are sinners and that our sin has separated us from a perfect God. But that by believing in Jesus Christ, we can be forgiven If you've never taken that step to believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord, please do that right now. Say, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are, that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again. Today I ask you to be my Savior and my Lord. If you already do know Jesus, I hope that you'd share your faith with those around you and use what you're hearing on this show to do that. Go to Godsolutionshow.com to get all of our past shows, including the past two weeks of interviews with Dr. Fasrana, like I always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to The God Solution with
0: Nate Herbst. We hope that you were encouraged by what you heard today and are better equipped to share Christ this week. You can get the audio from today's broadcast and all the past God Solution shows at GodSolutionShow.com. Thanks for listening and being a part of The God Solution.